in a world full of straight people. Aren't you glad there's WOW Presents Plus, the number one place in the world to see Drag Race? And so much more. Subscribe to WOW Presents Plus. Still only $4.99. Subscribe today as streamed on TV. DC. I am in NPR headquarters. Instead of being in my office, which has, you know, lovely art and whatever, I'm in one of our little workstation booths so that people don't rap on the window and say, I need you for all things considered today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the, but the, the ambiance that you're really yeah, giving it's us that, NPR. It's that lovely textured soundproofing mm. foam wall stuff that, you know, you only find in the finest of audio facilities. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. and, and great lighting. Uh, uh, I mean, we. Uh, I think we differ on that. I I would uh, maybe choose something that's maybe a little less fluorescent, a little less top down. But I'm I'm glad you think it works. It's working. It work. Yeah, from where I'm sitting, it's working. We should say who we're speaking to, just so we don't have to record a separate. You mean intro. you mean my um, voice isn't immediately instantaneously see, recognizable? I think all of our listeners know that they are listening to Ari Shapiro host of NPR's All Things Considered, author of the new book, The Best Strangers in the World. I feel like I should offer a disclaimer here that I might in the conversation that follows, and I can't say for certain, I'm not predicting, but I may use language that you would not hear on public radio, just in case Welcome there are it. any like so fragile, sustaining it. member, delicate eardrums that are going to burst if I drop an F-bomb or something. Mm -hmm. I just need to... Need to prepare the way for that. We gotta, we gotta yeah, let him know. We're getting Ari after hours. Exactly, NPR after Ari dark. Ari after hours. Yes, yes. This is uh, this is exactly what we're hoping for. Uh, <laughs> I'm loving the book. We want to we want to dive into it. But first, what is it that is uh, that that makes up your pop culture diet right now? What oh are you, wow! What are you watching, you know, I... listening to, etc. I graze widely, mm -hmm. and I'm always consuming stuff for work and. At its best, there's an overlap between work and pleasure. So, for example, I just recorded an interview with an artist who I am so fucking obsessed with. There we go. First F-bomb of the there podcast. Um, a South African pop star musician named Nakane. Mm -hmm. And they have released... It's. I'm not sure if it's their second or third album, but um, I was a huge fan of an album they released a few years ago. There was a track on it called New Brighton that was a collaboration with Anoni. Their new album is called Bastard Jargon. They live in London now. They grew up in South Africa. And so the music is like dance floor music with South African rhythms and harmonies and like a strong pop aesthetic. Um, there's this one track on the album that's a collaboration with Perfume Genius Totally obsessed. Nakane, the album is Bastard Jargon. Once it drops, you'll be playing it all summer. That's oh my, my promise God. to you. Excellent. Yeah. Also, like every other human in America, I'm watching The Last of Us and obsessed with the fact that in a nine-episode season, a show about zombies based on a video game has not one but two queer love stories. It's incredible in that way. It's incredible. Who'd have thought? Yeah. 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 It's... Uh... 
Yeah, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful show. I, I can't. Uh, I didn't think I had room in my heart for more zombies and or post apocalyptic stuff, and yet. Yeah, you know, I did not love The Walking Dead because to me it felt too relentlessly violent, jump scare, gore, nonstop. Admittedly, I didn't watch an entire season, but the first few episodes I watched, I was like, eh, not for me. And what I think The Last of Us gets so right is the balance between that, the kind of zombie jump scare violence stuff, and all the other facets of storytelling that they're so good at. I feel really basic saying that because literally everybody I know is watching this show. I feel like I should have some deep cut of like, oh, this is the most amazing thing you've never heard of. But no, I'm watching the same thing as everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that it is as close to a sort of blockbuster as we're capable of as a culture right now. With yeah. everybody being so sort of all over the place. Yeah, HBO, I think, is really good at creating a show that everybody is talking about. And mm -hmm. as soon as this season is over, it's going to be season two of Yellow Jackets. And, you know, like, they're mm -hmm. really good at doing that and just queuing them up one after another. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What did you grow up obsessed with, pop culture-wise? Um, my parents' musical theater record albums. Whether That's that right. was, like, oh, yeah, Little Shop of Horrors, Lame as a Rob. I mean... I would saunter into middle school wearing a Les Miserables t-shirt with a turtleneck underneath and think I was the coolest thing in the world. That was... I, my classmates didn't seem to share that view, Matt. I'm just, you know... <laughs> I thought I was, but they, for whatever reason, seemed not to. But yeah, the pop culture that I was obsessed with in the 80s, like the first cassette I ever bought was Phil Collins... Um, I was a U2 completist. I had like every U2 album Solid. on cassette and on CD. Yeah. Uh, okay. I'm just going to ask you this point blank. Shoot. Early 80s Phil Collins. Sexy or no? I was not attracted to his music as like, I want to jump this guy's bones. Mm -hmm. That was not where I was coming okay. from. Okay. Um, I actually did an interview with Phil Collins a few years ago about his memoir, mm -hmm. and he was the most delightful conversationalist. Oh, he yeah. was the best. I mean, one, of the, one of the things he said that I thought was so brilliant was I asked how he felt about being so strongly associated with a particular moment in pop culture. Like, mm -hmm. he idolizes timeless artists and musicians. And so I said, look, people think of your sound as defining a particular moment in time. And he said... That's beyond my control. You may have heard Susudio a million times, but I only recorded it once. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. He's good. And I'm telling he's you, good. go back to those 1982 videos. There's something about you early think he's 80s sexy? Phil Collins. That, there there was a moment, there was kind of a Fair Isle sweater moment in around 1982 mm. where it's like, hold on. This is, it, it, it strikes something primal in me. It's like I, I kind of, like this might have been what nudged me down the pathway to <laughs> Phil Collins made you gay. You're yeah, Phil he's Collins in there. Made you gay. He's in you there. also mentioned Hold On, so I have to give a shout out to Wilson Phillips, also part of the soundtrack of my childhood. Oh, Great. Very yes. important. Come on. <laughs> Who's better? Who's better? By the way, have you? they have new music out. No. Yes, How they do. Wilson this? Phillips? Yes, they do. I, they, yeah. They did a I'm cover. Gonna... Damn it. I have to look this up. But yeah, they, they released a new single late last year. It what? is, uh, yep. 
Yep, they could be. Wow, they didn't, could didn't be they have a cameo a in a movie recently? Yeah. Um, was it well, Bridesmaids? Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. Was that the one? They had some cameo. Bridesmaids. Bridesmaids. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, um, they could come back. Uh, we just don't know. Hold on. What was it? What was it? Oh, uh, Boyfriends. They did a cover of uh, Harry Styles' song, uh, Boyfriends. I can't wait to oh. listen to that as soon as we're done with this recording. Mm-hmm. Welcome back. Yeah, I'm always uh, ready for um, a Wilson Phillips revival, although China has gotten a little bit too Jesus-y in a way that I'm not super comfortable with. Okay. Hmm. You know, uh, that is news to me. Cardi so and Wendy, you're giving oh. me new information here. She's got a YouTube channel. That's a rabbit hole you don't want to fall down. Often I find um, YouTube channels in general to be rabbit holes I don't want to fall down. I think that's that's sort of kind of a good rule of life. That's good self-care is what that is. Yeah. Um, I also want to talk about high school, Ari Shapiro, because we get a glimpse of you as a teenager Mm -hmm. in the book, you know, coming out in high school in in Portland and Mm -hmm. finding your people. Can you you just paint a little bit of a a picture of that that version of Ari for us? I I came out when I was 16 and thought that I was going to be the only gay person under the age of 25 in America. Like, I, and I didn't have a boyfriend. I wasn't living a double life. Like, the internet barely existed. So I was just like, look, I get that this is who I am and I need to get it out there so I can move on and live my life. And so I told my parents and, um, and then I found out that there was this queer youth group. Who knew? Portland had queer youth. So I started going to this group every week and they told me that there was an all ages gay club in Portland called The City, which I believe was at the time the only all ages gay nightclub in the United States. And so it was amazing because Portland, it turns out, in the 90s had this thriving queer teenage scene. But so many of the people in it lived lives that were completely different from my white suburban bubble of privilege. And we all looked out for each other. And we were all part of the same team. And so like, I remember there was this girl who was part of the baby bull dyke gang and everybody called her Julie the junkie. And she gave me like a leather studded dog collar and wrist cuff as kind of a sign of protection. And so like I would go to the city nightclub with my whole posse of queer teenage friends, none of whom went to my high school because I was the only out queer kid at my high school. And, you know, we would dance all night and then we'd go get cheese fries at two in the morning at a 24-hour diner called The Roxy. And then I would like be back at high school Monday morning with my schedule of AP courses and I wore a pink triangle pin on my backpack and I plastered my locker with postcards of hot men like Herb Ritz and Robert Maplethorpe. And I was just like, if I'm, I don't want people spreading rumors and whispering about me, I'm going to drown out the whispers with a bullhorn. And so mm-hmm. that was the approach I took my senior year. Wow. I mean, in this moment, this like this specific, like today in mm-hmm. early March, there's so much conversation about, uh, about queer kids having access mm-hmm. to information about themselves, to community in any way, to uh, gay elders. It's, yep. I, I, it's your story really speaks to how important all of that is. And, yeah. and also to the fact that we are always fighting battles. Like when I came out, there was a ballot measure that would have amended the Oregon Constitution to 
allow people to fire teachers who were openly gay and do all kinds of other terrible things. And um, that ballot measure failed. But it, like it was a, a real fight that everybody in my high school was aware of even before I came out and everybody was taking sides in that fight. And the fights today are different. But when I look at LGBTQ history, you just see these trailblazers who have always been fighting different versions of similar battles and and thriving despite that, you know, whether it's sodomy laws or HIV AIDS or, you know, walking while trans, like the people who we are, I say in air quotes, descended from because we're not biologically, genetically descended from them. But like our ancestors is a word that I love, like knew how to do this. And there's a lot that we can learn from them. So then you're out. That is that sophomore year of high school. 16? It was no. It was. It was I came out at the very year. end of my junior year, and then had this incredible summer um, where I was working at Starbucks. The summer they invented the frappuccino, so every, all, everybody would like come to my wow. Starbucks to get the frappuccino. This was when Starbucks was only in Portland and Seattle, and I wasn't even planning on being like fully brazenly out at school. But at the end of that summer, there was no way I was going back in the closet at school. And so I told my little brother who was coming in as a freshman that he might get bullied because of me, which wasn't fair. And I apologized to him. And this 13-year-old kid, my little brother, says, well, it's not fair that you should get bullied either. You didn't ask for this. So, yeah. And did he? You know, I don't think he got bullied. He was... If he did, it wasn't something that he really talked to me about or I was just too self-absorbed to follow up with him and ask. Sure. Um, but we sort of moved in our own orbits in, in in high school when he was a freshman and I was a senior. Sure. And then when did you start w w dating? I mean, I know you met your husband very early in college, yeah. but you must have gotten some action in, in between coming out <laughs> and meeting him. That summer that I came out, so I was 16 and I had this 15-year-old, and I'll put it in air quotes, boyfriend. Um, and it was just like adorable teen romance and it didn't last long. And then my senior year, I started dating this guy who was a sophomore at Reed College. And I think we were better as friends than as boyfriends, but neither of us had anybody else to date. So we stayed together. And both of us kind of said, you know, if you meet somebody who you'd rather be with, that's fine. Like, it's not going to break my heart. And it was such a healthy way to begin really seriously dating we stayed together until I went to college, and then it was sort of like, okay, well, that was fun. I'm off. Bye. And we've stayed really good friends, and he met his husband around the same time I met my husband. And I think that formative experience really kind of set me on a path to um, having healthier relationships down the road. Uh, I'm really grateful to Michael Kelly, my first, like, real long-term serious boyfriend. Thanks, Michael. Shout out to Michael. You know, I, I'm sure some of this is projection, but I I feel like, you know, listening to you, reading you, you know, knowing that you're an out gay man who performs with Alan Cumming, you know, I, I, I don't need you to tell me where you stand politically for me to, to know where you stand politically. But um, I love in the book when you talk about, you know, how being a journalist kind of exempts you from so much political discourse, like you, you know, won't even stop to sign a petition on the on the street you have the perfect excuse not to yeah um and like not participating in in hot take culture is a responsibility but it also kind of sounds like a relief it's a little bit of both and 
Look, I, I want to be clear that I think objectivity is important and valuable. I also think we bring our full selves to whatever we do. And so much of what I explore in the book is the tension between those two things. But I can give you an example of why I really value being able to approach political debates as a journalist. As Tennessee passed this anti-drag law, and lots of other states are considering similar laws, I suggested that we have a conversation about the long history of anti-drag and anti-cross-dressing laws in the United States. So we called this incredible historian um, and we talked to her about the history of anti-cross-dressing laws, which go back 150 years in the U.S., the way that queer people dealt with them, how and why they were repealed. It was not advocacy journalism. It was informative, explanatory journalism. But it was a context that I wasn't hearing anywhere else that I think helps people better understand the moment that we're living in. And there is a difference between approaching that from a perspective of this is good or bad and here's why this should stay or go versus a perspective of how can we help our listeners better understand this. Jules Gilpeterson is the name of the historian. I was reaching for it. And she's incredible. She's at Johns Hopkins University, and she studies transgender history and the history of sexuality. She's great. So what, what, can, what can young uh, people in Tennessee do? What do you... Well, I, rather than give specific advice, I'm going to generally say that I think that as queer people, we are so often... Um, divorced from our elders, we don't have the generational transmission of knowledge that other um, marginalized groups have because most Jewish kids are raised by Jewish parents. Most black kids are raised by black parents. Most queer kids are not raised by queer parents. And so I think we have to actively make an effort to seek out and learn from our elders in a way that other marginalized groups don't. And it's not necessarily easy to do but it is so rewarding when you do it. And so I think what I would tell queer kids in Tennessee to do is go find your queer elders and talk to them and learn from them. Will you tell us uh, 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 as much as you can sort of the meet cute story of you and Mike? <laughs> yeah, so Mike and I were both the same year at Yale. And at the end of our freshman year, even though we had run in similar circles, like we both kind of did acapella and theater and stuff, we had never met until... Yale does a commencement musical every year, which they throw together in 10 days between the end of finals and commencement ceremonies. And Mike and I were both in the commencement musical. We were both like a step up from the chorus in Little Shop of Horrors. And we met that first day and just hit it off like nobody I've ever met. And it wasn't immediately clear to me whether he was gay or straight. And I knew that if we weren't going to date, we were going to be best friends forever. Um, and at, after opening night, we hooked up and then there was this summer where we wrote letters to each other and then we got back to school for our sophomore year and it was just clear that like he wasn't ready to be out. I wasn't ready to be closeted. We both had other things going on. It was complicated and messy. Fast forward to junior year. We took a trip to New York together, missed the last train home to New Haven, got a hotel room and have been together ever since. That's Outstanding. I have to ask, did you keep the letters? I've still got them somewhere. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't even know where and if he has mine. I'm going to ask him. Okay. Yeah, find those. That's the next book. Just publish the letters. <laughs> the love letters. Yeah. Uh, and then you two sort of accidentally became poster boys 
for gay marriage. Yeah. So <laughs> Mike grew up in San Francisco. And when Gavin Newsom, who was then San Francisco's mayor, started doing same-sex weddings in 2004, Mike really wanted to do it because, of course, we were going to get married whenever it was legal, if it was ever legal. But um, suddenly it was something we could do in the city where he grew up. And it was this huge national story. So I didn't have mixed feelings about marrying him, but I did have mixed feelings about jumping into the middle of this major fight in the culture wars that was a huge news story everybody was covering because I was a beginning journalist and I thought my role was to narrate the stories, not to participate in them. And so I actually asked my boss for permission to go to San Francisco and marry Mike. And, and she said, of course, go, be happy. And I said, I will leave my NPR tote bag at home. I will keep a low profile. Well, as luck would have it, as we were standing on the steps of San Francisco City Hall with our parents and this man performing the ceremony who had been with his now husband since before Stonewall, it was this incredibly moving emotional moment, so much so that we didn't notice the TV camera over our shoulder. And it was only that night that we saw the footage on the local NBC affiliates story about the same-sex marriage controversy and I thought, well, it's just the local news. It's okay. You know, nobody will notice. Um, it didn't have our names. They didn't interview us. It was just the B-roll. But then that footage made its way to the NBC Nightly News and then to MSNBC and then to CNBC. And basically, for about five years, any time there was a story on any NBC News anything about same-sex marriage, Mike and I were the faces in the background, us exchanging our rings. And it was only when, at some point, I was NPR's justice correspondent, and I got a phone call from Pete Williams, the NBC justice correspondent, who's also gay. And he's such a nice guy. He's such a gentleman. He's so classy. He called me up and he said, Ari, I think you're in the B-roll for my same-sex marriage story tonight. And I explained the whole thing, and I said, look, I'm, I'm ready to hand over the tiara and he said no problem i'll have you removed from the library footage and that was the end of my reign as the face of same-sex marriage on nbc news uh but a good reign <laughs> it was a good long reign honestly good long term congratulations thanks there's another um just kind of passing detail from the book i wanted to ask you about um parkour oh yeah wow yes please explain um, I was I was really into parkour for several years. I like seriously wow. trained at a parkour gym. I I like was almost a trainer at the gym, but my schedule had me traveling too much. I just loved it because it was like a fulfillment of my Spider-Man fantasies. Mm -hmm. You can you can scale a wall, you can jump over a building, and I also found that when I was like you know, sprinting at a box and, and flying over it, whatever anxiety or depression or concerns or stress might be in your brain, leave it. Like, all you can focus on is the thing your body has to do in that moment. Um, and I really loved doing it. It was, it was so satisfying. Eventually, I just started spraining the same ankle over and over and over again. And every time it would heal, I would go back to parkour and I would re-sprain the same ankle. And so I stopped seriously training parkour. But still to this day, when I work out on my own, when I work out at home, when I work out like out in the world, I use skills that I learn in parkour because it's all just using everything that's around you as your gym. Wow. Okay, so when are we going to see you on American Ninja Warrior? 
<laughs> Speaking of I, I, so you know, there were people at my there. gym who competed on American Ninja Warrior. Come and on. the thing that was so beautiful was not seeing the sort of acrobatic flips and twists, but just watching somebody flow like water through a complicated, you know, obstacle course. Yeah. It was just gorgeous. When people do that really well, it's a thing of beauty. Yeah. I have to ask, how do you... How does one get started in parkour? How did how did your parkour well, journey begin? I, so I, I always got bored at the gym. I, I found it just crazy making to lift a weight with the hope of lifting the same weight at a five pound heavier level. It mm-hmm. just felt like um, waiting for Godot or, you know, some like, I don't know. Um, and so... I looked into like trapeze school or circus skills and it was just before parkour was really starting to take off. There was a gym that opened in DC that was I think one of the first parkour specific gyms in the country. It was kind of before the CrossFit craze. And the way you train is very similar to the way you train martial arts where there are basic skills and you start them at an accessible level and then you work your way up. So you might start by jumping from one wooden block to another wooden block. And then you might move them farther apart. And then you might replace one wooden block with a railing. And once you can jump back and forth 10 times without falling, you advance further and set it up to be even a little more challenging. There are specific kinds of vaults and maneuvers that you can drill slowly and then drill more quickly. And once you can do it over one, you do it over two. And once you can do it over a narrow beam, you do it over a wide beam, things like that. I loved it. It was so, so great. I can remember like on freezing cold days, it was in this gym that used to be a firehouse. And so they would open the firehouse doors. And on freezing cold days, I remember just working so hard and then like laying flat out on the ground and seeing the steam coming up from my face. I am, (laughs) this is to be clear, maybe one paragraph in the book and you have got me off on this like reminiscence tangent. I'm just, I'm, I'm into it. So Good, yeah, good detail to pick I'm out so there. Glad, I'm, glad, I'm so glad I asked. Um, and when you talk about like the, the mental clarity and those benefits of of parkour, what where what do you turn to for that now? Yeah. Are you like a med- meditator? And um, you know, I use one of those apps that's of- like ten minutes a day, but I'm not a meditator. I do yoga. I ride my bike to and from work every day, which I find super helpful just to have that physical activity. I have two dogs, and so I walk them. I find cooking very kind of head-clearing, calming, and meditative. Um, And I also have a garden, and so I spend time in the garden, and that's really helpful. You also um, tour the world singing with uh, Pink Martini. I'm sure people know this. but and uh, I'm surprised at the number of people who don't. Even though I've done this for more than a dozen years and been all over the U.S. and all over the world, there are still people all the time on Twitter who are like, I'm sorry, what? You perform with who? Yeah, I went and reading. I, I I was trying to do the math and I I couldn't figure it out. But I think I might have seen you at the Hollywood Bowl at when I was younger and wasn't as excited as I should have. wasn't paying <laughs> the, the right amount of attention. How dare you, Matt? Um, no, I mean, please, it's my 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 greatest shame. But uh, you know, it, that in addition to the cabaret shows with Alan Cumming that I mentioned. It, you know, these are obviously unusual gigs for a beloved NPR reporter, but I don't know. It, it kind of surprised me reading the book. It doesn't seem like there's really been this conflict between like your NPR self and your performer self. When I started doing the Pink Martini thing, 
I was afraid that I would no longer be taken seriously as a journalist. And I, as I describe in the book, I kept imagining sort of like a tap on the shoulder and this Walter Cronkite voice saying, oh, you're going to sing with a band? Okay, your journalism career ends here. But what I've realized over the years that I've been singing with Pink Martini, and part of what I tried to draw out in this book is that it's actually very similar to what I do in journalism in that I'm trying to connect with people. I'm telling stories. I'm trying to help them see the world through different eyes. It's just that journalism is one tool to do that and music is another. Yeah. And, you know, the, the full title of the book is uh, The Best Strangers in the World, Stories from a Life Spent Listening. And, you know, you talk about how listening has, all, it, 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 you know, obviously got you to where you are now and has kind of always been your superpower. And, you know, I, I'm not a journalist, obviously, but I, I do think of myself as someone who listens, is naturally curious about other people's lives. And it, but I, I, that that shouldn't, to me, be a unique characteristic. But it often, like, I'm often surprised by how many people don't really listen and are just mm. don't like have that curiosity. So, I guess my question is, can you give some of our listening challenged listeners just some basic tips or tricks um, well, on how to have a better conversation? I think. Listening has to come from curiosity. And if you're listening to somebody because you read in How to Win Friends and Influence People that it's going to make you more effective in the world, it's not going to be authentic. You, I, If you're not genuinely curious about people, I don't know what I can tell you to make you more curious about people. But if you are curious about people, then listening to them is the best possible way to fulfill that curiosity. Um, one of the things about listening that I think is so important in what I do is that people often ask, as a journalist, how I show up in places where terrible things have happened and get nosy and ask people questions and intrude on their lives in a difficult moment. And certainly there are people who feel that way and I then go talk to somebody else because I don't want to make a difficult situation worse for them. But I am always... Um, reassured by the number of people who, after something terrible, whether it's a natural disaster or a mass shooting or a war or whatever the case may be, really just want someone to listen to them. They really just want to tell their story and they want somebody to hear what they have to say. And so whenever I start to feel like maybe as a journalist I'm being vampiric and I'm being parasitic and I'm sort of taking somebody's story to make a paycheck, I remember that listening actually is a very powerful act, that it can be an act of care, that it can be an act of love, and that for many people having somebody offer to listen to what they have to say can actually be healing. Were you, were you like this as a child? Were you someone who struck up conversations with adults? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, there's this weird push-pull between being really curious about other people and wanting to turn the microphone on others and also being a little bit of a attention whore, if you'll forgive my saying so. Like, I, you know, my mother said 
it was at my grandmother's 90th birthday and she was like introducing her kids to the extended family and she introduced me as Ari the middle son who was so ignored as a middle child that he had to find a job where millions of people would pay attention to him every day which who that hit me <laughs> I was like whoa is that actually why I do what I do? And there, look, there's something to that. Like, I sing on stage at the Hollywood Bowl in front of thousands of people with Pink Martini. I'm not a shy person. But more than that, I really do love hearing about the lives of others. And I love giving a microphone to somebody who wouldn't otherwise be heard by as many people and sharing their voices with NPR listeners. And I can do the interview with the presidential candidate or the movie star, and I, you know, I know how to do that. It's a part of the job. I enjoy it. It's fine. But the thing I really love is elevating the story of somebody who you wouldn't otherwise hear from. You and Mike have been together for I, I, 20 plus years, I think, at this point. Yeah. yeah. Um, and when you were talking earlier about that, that, um, you know, kind of first relationship you've had and the the freedom you gave each other and the way you communicated and how that really sort of like set the table for healthy relationships in the future. How has that informed your marriage? And, um, you know, what's the secret to that longevity? Well, you know, Mike, when we when we started dating, Mike really kind of trained me in how to have an argument because my family is a little bit more Midwestern. My parents met in Minneapolis and lived there for 10 years before moving to Fargo and living for there for living there for 10 years. That's where I was born. And so they take a sort of like, don't say anything that could upset anybody approach. And, and Mike early on sort of showed me that by saying things that in the short term might be upsetting, you can address things that in the long term might become like, you know, existential. And so the first thing that I think is the most important is communication. Um, but then the second thing is that, like, it's not hard to find somebody who you're attracted to. It's not hard to find somebody to have a crush on. It's not hard to find somebody you want to sleep with. What's really hard to do is find somebody who you want to talk to every day, who you want to wake up and see every day, who you want to actually spend the time with that is required of a marriage. And I think having that frame allows me to appreciate how lucky I am to be with somebody who I actually enjoy talking to every day, even after more than 20 years. Like, that's the real challenge. That's the magic. That's the difficult part. How are the parents now with the uh, communication of difficult oh my God. subjects? Let me tell you, my mother and Mike's mother talk to each other more than either of us talks to them. They take trips okay. together. Our parents get along so well it is it is uncanny, and I think, you know, if, God forbid, Mike and I were ever to split up, our mothers would still remain, like, closer friends than they are to most other people in their lives. That is so beautiful. The, the moms take trips together without you. Yeah, um, you know, Chautauqua, the kind of summer arts festival? So yeah. my, my mother's sister, okay, my cousin is uh, he, he conducts the opera program at Chautauqua. It's my mother's sister's son. So my mother, her sister, and my mother-in-law take a trip together to Chautauqua most summers. And this tells you something about them. Each morning, they convene for breakfast, and they assign one of the three of them to be the warrior 
for the day. So that when any of the three of them are worrying about something, they can just give it to the assigned warrior and then it's off their shoulders for the day. That is how my mother, my husband's mother, and my aunt go through life. That's this is the next road trip movie that <laughs> totally. I need to see. Yeah. That's the road to Chautauqua. That's brilliant. Yeah. What a great what a great side hustle for someone. I'll be your warrior. For <laughs> Designated warrior. Fantastic. Yeah. It's like you hire people to be the mourners at a funeral. You hire people to show up and wail. You can just hire somebody to worry for you. Bravo. Somebody's got to. Um, Ari, you're so cool. Thank you so much. Oh, my God. This has been so so fun. It flew by. I've loved the conversation. Thank you so much. And the book, The Best Strangers in the World Stories from a Life Spent Listening, is out when? Now. Now? March 21st is the publication date. Okay, it's out now. It's in the store. Grab it. Homophilia is a World of Wonder podcast produced and engineered by the wonderful Renee Colbert. Our theme song is by the amazing Ben Wise. We want to thank the incredible Michael Pressman and everyone at World of Wonder. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at HomophiliaPod and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts already. Thank you. There's WOW Presents Plus, the number one place in the world to see Drag Race. And so much more. Subscribe to WOW Presents Plus. Still only $4.99. Subscribe today as streamed on TV.